BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. Beyond Zero is Toyota's vision of a carbon neutral future and more. Toyota gives you the power to reduce carbon emissions and help move toward its vision with a wide selection of electrified vehicles. Whether you're into hybrid EVs for that traditional Toyota feel with better MPG, battery EVs for a smooth and silent ride, or plug-in hybrid EVs that switch between battery and fuel, Toyota has you covered. And for those who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool. Giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions and move closer to Toyota's Beyond Zero Vision. Visit toyota.com slash electrified vehicles slash beyond dash zero dash vision. Toyota, let's go places. Pushkin. Back to the Future turns 35 this year. And for many people, Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News is forever tied to Marty McFly hitching a ride on the back of cars with a skateboard waving at a jazzercise class. It's the quintessential 80s movie montage. With a string of top 10 hits in his perfectly feathered bouffant, Huey Lewis catapulted it into Michael J. Fox-level fame. But Huey is far from a prefab pop star. In this interview, he talks to Bruce Hedlum about his career that spans nearly 50 years. He shares details of his tragic family history, his bohemian upbringing that includes late-night parties with Allen Ginsberg, and how he bonded with Michael Jackson during the recording of We Are the World. Huey has tons of great stories, and we wanted to spend time mining them before we get into talking about his music, including his classic 80s record, Sports. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum and Huey Lewis. They start off talking about Huey's recent health scare that's left him severely hearing impaired. How are you feeling today? I'm okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually pretty good. I'm, I'm a five today, which is almost as good as I get. But I was at like a two yesterday. Okay. And we should back up. You've got Meniere's disease. Meniere's disease. Uh, it, it affects your hearing, your balance. Yeah, yeah. Um, Meniere's is, you know, it, first of all, it's a... It's a syndrome based on symptoms. So it's called a disease, but it's not really a disease. And um, and frankly, they don't know. I mean, I've been to House Ear Institute, Stanford Ear Institute, Mayo Clinic, UCSF, UCLA, talked with Dr. Stephen Rausch at Harvard Medical School and, and Mass General Eye and Ear, and nobody knows anything. Uh, Luxford told me the, the real diagnosis for what you have, Huey, is we don't know. So, but having said that, uh, it fluctuates and uh, it can get better and then it can get worse. Uh, the trouble when it's bad, I can't hardly hear anything. Um, when it's good, I'm with hearing aids, I'm pretty good. And I might even be able to sing, but I, I, I don't know that yet because I, I haven't been good long enough to try. So that's it. I need, to, I need to stabilize. I need to get better and stabilize and then figure out a way to sing. Okay. But you do have a new album out, which we're going to talk about soon. But, uh, but I want to back up first okay. and ask you uh, a question everybody wants to know, which is, did you really get a perfect score <laughs> on your math SAT? 
Yes, I did. You I, did. Yeah, and, 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 I got, and I got a perfect score on my level two SAT as well. Okay. Now, <laughs> were you this kid who studied all the time? No, or? I, no I don't know. I had a math aptitude okay. that I cared nothing for. Because I, you know, I, I took a break between high school and college, took a harmonic and pitchhiked around Europe, went back to Cornell, and you know, went to engineering school. Went to walked into the classroom and took a look, look around and said, "This is not where I want to be." Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to be Bob Dylan, not a Boeing engineer or exactly. working at GE. Now, your father was he was a doctor, right? What kind of doctor was he? He was a radiologist. Radiologist, but he was also a jazz drummer. Jazz drummer and a piano player. Where was he? Where did he perform? In in San Francisco. He would just have jam sessions on the weekends with he and he played with a, a guy called Ralph Sutton, great stride piano player. Mm-hmm. I was a neighbor, and my dad played drums with him, and uh, and we had people over at the house all the time. We had Eddie Figueroa play bass. Um, my dad would play drums. Ralph played piano. We had Ben Webster in my living room at one point. Really? Playing and, King of the tenor uh, sax. Well, he when whenever these musicians would play San Francisco, sometimes Ralph would invite him out. And then on a Sunday, my mom would make a big bunch of spaghetti and they'd have a bunch of red wine, and they'd have a jam session. This happened when you were around. It was what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Kevin wow. was like nine or ten years old. They'd run the Marin Outdoor Art, Gar- Art and Garden Center in Mill Valley, mm-hmm. and they would have a jam. And all the families and invite people. It was just like a Sunday afternoon, and these cats would jam. Mm-hmm. And they have fun. And that was, you know, a light went off when I saw that. I said, that looks like fun. Wow. And your mother has a fascinating story, too. She yeah. escaped Europe during the war. She, my mother was born in Łódź, Poland. And in 1939, she was born in 1924. In 1939, when the Nazis invaded Warsaw, word came down that the Nazis were coming. And my grandparents, although they were Catholic, thought, well, I think we'll be okay. They thought maybe we'd just kind of blow over. Mm -hmm. But then apparently it wasn't going to. Mm -hmm. So they sent the kids out with their furs and all the, you know, the jewels and the gold coins sewed into the lining of the furs. (laughs) And my mom hitchhiked, basically, got lifts from fans, people, and and all the way to Portugal and then Brazil with her. She was 15 and her brother was 10. And they moved to Brazil. They had a relative there who put them up in a youth hostel, arranged for them to stay in a youth hostel. And my mother lived there for almost five years, at, at which time finally her parents, my grandparents, got out of Poland because my grandmother had a, a thyroid condition that some Swedish surgeon was the only guy on the planet who knew about this. And the Germans were very interested in the procedure. So they allowed her a visa to leave, to go to Sweden, to have this procedure done. And they just kept going and went to America. They stayed at, uh, they moved to um, Methuen, Massachusetts, which was the textile capital of America, because my grandfather was a dye chemist. He had a a textile mill in Poland, and mm-hmm. he knew all about it. And they were a, kind of a wealthy, very cultured family and so on. Now in America, he was struggling, tough to get a job with all the all the returning GIs. He wasn't making any money. So he and my mother, he and my grandmother committed suicide together. And it was a huge blow to my mom. My mom, who was a commercial artist and was, was in New York City, uh, designing album covers and Walt Whitman's little primers and all this, doing wonderful commercial work and, you know, well-dressed and neat and prim. That's when she flipped out because America had been the had been the voice of freedom and everything for her because when she was traveling through Europe, whenever there was jazz, she was safe because there were GIs. GIs and jazz meant, ah, safety. Oh, so she she was a music lover, too. So she was a music lover, too. So she marries my dad, who's playing jazz in New York. And, and they marry. And then she reunited with her parents. And then her parents commit suicide. So she kind of, dr- my uncle ex- later explained to me, that's when she turned off to the idea of America is a great place and became a kind of a bohemian and my dad moved to California. My whole family moved to California in 1953 or 54. And then uh, 
she started hanging out with the beatniks in in the early 60s and my parents split up they got divorced in 62 61 i guess so she was connected with what was going on in san francisco with the beats all that okay did you know those guys when you were growing up well yeah well then my mom when my parents split up my mother would hang at the no-name bar which is in sausalito it was the tides bookstore and the no-name bar which were the two kind of beatnik enclaves and the no-name bar had jazz musicians and all that and my mom would bring the bar home you know occasionally Mm -hmm. i'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning and the place would be jammed with people and hippies and finger down ginsburg in the corner and all kinds of poets and musicians Mm -hmm. and stuff uh and then she married lou welch she did well they didn't actually get married but they yeah the They're, 60s version of getting married. That's it. That's it. Um, and did, he was a, a well-known beat poet. He was friends with Ferlinghetti. He was, I think, a character in one of Jack Kerouac's books. He was books. a character in one of Kerouac's books. He went to read with Philip Whalen and, and uh, Gary Snyder and, you know, knew Kirby Doyle and Ferlinghetti and all those people. And that was that was their world, you know. That was my mom's world for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Did you know... I did. I do, well, and he was he was an amazing guy because he was a he was a great orator. I mean, he could and he you know he was a a William Carlos Williams devotee. The Beats or W. C. Williams was a big influence for them, mm. and that was street talk, right? That was poetry as speech, speak as 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 people speak, and and that poetry should be spoken and not necessarily read. But spoken and Lou was a great reader. He was a great teacher and a and a good poet. But he was an amazing re- reader. And um, in those days, there were poets on all the bills. You know, in the early sixties. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, not only Neil Cassidy with the Dead and this, but poets typically would have a you know in between bands you'd have a poet. Mm-hmm. And Lou was a star. He was a really big star. But then he committed suicide as well. Well, that must that must have been a terrible shock to your mother then. Yeah, but my mother, you know, my mom had had escaped Poland, and, right? And, and and then I mean, I could tell you my mother's story in Brazil, mm-hmm. and and all the stuff she experienced. It's just an un- unbelievable story, my mother. Right. I mean, also, you know, her her brother got captured by the Nazis and then released when they realized he was he was Catholic, uh, barely, mm-hmm. and she had all kinds of she's got all kinds of stories. Wow. So uh, for what she's experienced, she's never been sentimental or any of that. And she but after just, her grand, after her parents had committed suicide, it must have been. It wasn't, wasn't a big thing for her. Really, she thought Louis had just disappeared. He engineered his own disappearance. What Lou did really is he wrote a poem called "The Song Mount Temple Pius Sings." In it, he describes his demise. He wanted to be recycled by vultures. What he did is he went in in Nevada to Gary Snyder's camp mm-hmm. and they were going to, there was a Bohemian camp there and Lou was going to build a place there, but he was a vicious alcoholic. He was just, and he could barely get up in the morning. And I, mm-hmm. I would shake, I would talk to him. I said, Lou, you can do this. You got to go. You got, and I, I was probably one of the last people to talk to him, but when he mm-hmm. headed up to Gary Snyder's, my mom had left. She'd gone to South America to leave him. She says, you don't need me. You're a drunk. I'm gone. My mom had gone to South America to travel, and he went to Gary Snyder's, and he was just totally depressed. And so he took his favorite revolver and went out for somewhere, and then, oh, shoot, Lou, Lou Welch is missing. And then the next day they said, oh, somebody saw him. It's okay. They called off the search. And that was Gary, who, having read the poem, understood that Lou, what Lou was doing and didn't want anybody to you know, bother or any of that stuff. So that's what, and my mother would never really come to grips with it. She never really came to grips with the fact that he committed suicide. She thought he disappeared. Mm-hmm. Well, there was always that mystery, right? That yeah. did he disappear? But in, like, your, in your mind. Just like Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, he was gone. You went through something very difficult. Your, your parents actually made you decide where you wanted to live, didn't they, when they split? Is that true? No, no. I had custody. My mother had custody. Okay. And I, I was only 12. Uh, my mother had custody. But my father had visiting rights, visiting mm. privileges. And he convinced me, he talked to me like, he says, look, there's this school, you know, and you're a smart kid. 
And if you want to get on in life, you got to compete with the best. And he says, and I, and I, I think there's an opportunity for you to go to, go to prep school. I think it'd be a great thing for you to do. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. He says, but you're going to have to want to do it because your mother's got custody. And if you want me to do this, I'll petition the court, but it's going to be a big pissing match, you know? And I yeah. said, well, I think it's probably a good idea. So then we went to court. My mother, my mother was over here. My dad was over there. It was a horrible day. And she's, they're screaming at one another. And the judge fortunately said, let's go back in my chambers. So we go back into the judge's chambers. And I was, I was 12. And he said, um, what do you know about this place? I said, well, you know, I, I, I a little bit. Of, I, do you want to go there? I said, I think, I think I do. He says, how many people in a classroom? And I said, eight to 15. I just read the brochure. <laughs> I had just read the brochure. I said, eight to 15. He goes, how many in the student body? I said, 600. He said, okay, that's, that's enough. He went back and he said, the kid can go to prep school. Yeah. <laughs> in July of 63, I turned 13. In August, I went away to prep school for four years, coat and tie, all boys, and neither one of my parents ever attended. They never visited you there? Never. No. So I really was gone by at mm-hmm. that age. Did you like not, prep school? Not that my parents didn't love me, mind you. You know, yeah. it was just a different generation. My dad was a hard ass. He was just, you know, I never ever told him I loved him, even though I loved him and he loved me. And towards late in life, I, because you know, with my kids, we say "love you, dad." I mean, we tell each other we love each other like six times a day. You know, mm-hmm. and with my dad, so later on in life, and he was, I bet he was in his eighties when I finally said it. I. I thought I said, I, Pops, I call him Pops. Pops, I love you, Pops. And I heard him on the other end go, oh. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. I wish I hadn't said that. He was thinking, I only had a few more years to go. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I would have got there. <laughs> uh, did you like prep school? I hated it at first. I just, I, you know, when I first went away, I, I cried myself to sleep. I was homesick like crazy. It was horrible, and it was all you do to keep my head above water. But after four years, uh, uh, you know, I, I after four years, did I lo- did I like it? You know, I, yeah, kind of. Mm-hmm. You were an I'm, athlete. I'm really glad I went there. Let's yeah. put it that. You were a baseball player, right? I was a baseball player. Yeah. Were you? What did you? What position did you play? Uh, pitched and played shortstop. Oh, okay. Were you going to play at Cornell? Was that part of the? I was my the box was checked when I went to Cornell, mm-hmm. but I had been to Europe for a year. Yeah, and been to North Africa. I went to Marrakesh mm-hmm. for like a day, and got so stoned I couldn't leave for three months, <laughs> playing harmonica <laughs> in the square. You know, were there players you were listening to back then? Were you listening to harmonica music? Yeah, well, yeah, I was. I, I was. I was a blues snob. I was listening to you know Walter and Sonny Boy, Little Walter and Sonny Boy Williamson. Right, and and then 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 Big Walter and uh, and, and James Cotton. I mean James Cotton. You know. Cotton was probably our biggest influence. Walter, Cotton, Sonny Boy, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Were you singing? by when Singing you... a little. But not mainly... much. I never sang till I went to Europe. But when I went to Europe, I had, and on my busking, I sang. That's, mm-hmm. That was part of my shtick. And how did, the, how did the busking go? Real good. Really? I mean, well, yeah. I mean, in Morocco, I'm in Marrakesh, and I'm, you know, I, I would play on the square. I mean, mm-hmm. the snake charmer was over here, and the you know the the bicyclist acrobat who would ride around doing handstands on the bicycle was over here, and the the two uh, hash dealers who did their their spiel, the two growers, they had a whole big shtick. They did, they yell, scream, and they smoked these big hookahs, and and there were there was a it was an entertaining thing. All this happened in the square, and I would busk on the square, and I'd make like three dirhams. And the youth hostel was where I stayed. We called it Mukta's home for wayward boys and girls. <laughs> we got one, cost one dirham, and all I could eat was a half a dirham. So I was I, I was a dirham and a half to the good. You I were, said you were clearing a I'm making one point five dirham, yeah, a day. <laughs> I can't afford to leave. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with Huey Lewis and Bruce Hadlam after a quick break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. We're back with more from Huey Lewis. How did you first get connected with Clover? Well, that's a good question. So now I'm now I'm at Cornell, and I'm playing harmonica in, in bands. And I finally decided I want to be a musician. At Cornell, the African American Student Society and the SDS took over Willard Strait Hall the, on Parents Weekend. Mm-hmm. The the all the African American kids took it, kicked all the parents out in the middle of the night. And took over the place with guns. And this was on the cover of Newsweek magazine. Mm-hmm. And so the whole campus shut down and big so you could take pass fail for that that semester. Because oh, okay. there were two weeks. So immediately I took pass fail on everything. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, another semester didn't have to work. Right. So but eventually it started to catch up with me. Yeah. I called my dad and said, Look, I'm dropping out. I want to be a musician. And he said, Well, Fine. You either know what you're doing or you don't. Your dad is a radiologist. Says take a year leave of absence. I can't imagine a lot of radiologists having that conversation with their sons these well, days. Well, my, my dad is a bohemian. My dad is a bohemian. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, my both parents are far out. My, my, right. You know, but um, so now I I I go back to I want to go back to California because this is '69. I finally say, Dad, I'm dropping out. He says, no problem. And I go back to California and I join a some of my high school, grade school friends, a bluegrass band called Hereford Heartstringers. There were like 10 of us. Mm-hmm. And we would busk it at uh, Fisherman's Wharf. That's where we really made some money. We had a 10-piece bluegrass band, four of whom were in, in the band Clover. And so they oh. recruited me for Clover. So okay. I played harmonica and they recruited me for Clover, and I joined Clover in about 72, I guess. Okay. And by that point, Clover had made a couple—they'd made a couple of albums. They'd made two albums in the 60s, yep. With, which which uh, were very well regarded in England for some reason. For some reason, they were very well—because they, they were uh, Andrew Lauder, who was, who was at the time A&R at Liberty Records, inherited those records from Fantasy, and the record was— Sent uh, was distributed by Liberty in in England, and it only sold about nine copies. It was an amazing record because the cover was the Clover four Clover guys, including John McPhee, mm-hmm. with hair down to his waist, wearing coveralls like hippie coveralls, hair down to his waist, standing in front of seven foot high marijuana plants. Mm-hmm. And this is when Willie Nelson had a coat and tie on. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is this is. Early days, you know, early country rock days. Well, in London, that was, they just, that blew their minds. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Lauder passed the album along to his bands, Brinsley Schwartz, Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers, and those pub rock bands. And they really took to Clover. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Brinsley Schwartz wrote a song that said, going to saddle up and ride away to the hills where Clover play. Yeah. And so we... We now, we're in Clover, and we're playing clubs everywhere, and we don't know, you know, uh, we don't know any of this. And now we go, we hear from, it was a, 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 a John Stewart, who is from one of the old Kingston trios, mm-hmm. had a roadie named Mark Ford. And his drummer, 
uh, John Stewart's drummer was Pete Thomas from Elvis Costello's drummer, Pete right. Thomas. And they, and Mark and uh, Mark Ford, the roadie, lived in Mill Valley, and we knew him real well. So on a break, um, Pete Thomas came with Mark Ford because he had mentioned to Mark Ford, have you ever heard of a band called Clover? And Mark says, yeah, they live in my hometown. <laughs> so now we go, this English guy comes to our rehearsal. Pete Thomas, and he says, man, you guys have a big following in, in England. We said, we do? We didn't know anything about it. So he told everybody in Britain that we were still alive and well. And then next thing we know, we're playing the Palomino in L.A. And these four guys walk in, actually six guys, in little gray suits and short hair. And it was Dr. Feelgood and Jake Riviera. And Nick Lowe was, Nick Lowe was Wilco's guitar roadie. And, and they found out that Clover was playing. Oh, my gosh, they show up to our show. And that's, we meet, and Jake and Dave Robinson hatched the plan to bring Clover to England and to be produced by Nick Lowe and to take the country by storm. Mm -hmm. But the day we landed, punk rock hit. So this is like 76? Exactly. Simultaneously, in our first few months, our managers were Jake Riviera and Dave Robinson. Mm -hmm. And within signing us and bringing us to London in the first few months, they signed Graham Parker, Elvis Costello, created Stiff Records, yeah. started, signed Reckless Eric, The Damned, all that stuff. And and so Nick, they pulled Nick off Clover and let him produce all that other stuff. And for Clover, they they hooked us up with Mutt Langer. Uh, to, the, the theory was... With us, we had long hair and all this stuff. Let's make these guys a rock and roll, American rock and roll record and compete and, and aim them for America. Okay. Because it ain't going to work here in, in Britain right now. Did you tour at all in England? Oh, yeah. We toured with Linda Lewis first. We toured with Graham Parker. And oh, then yeah. we toured with Thin Lizzy. How was, Graham Parker's one of my favorites. How was it touring with Graham Parker? It was horrible. We got, they hated us. We got, we got shit thrown at us on every gig. <laughs> that Graham was a lovely guy. Yeah. But it was a horrible, horrible tour. And then we went on tour with Lizzie and the same thing. I mean, our road manager was a guy called Frank Martinet. Frank, real great guy. So we said, Frank, you're going to have to introduce us because we're billed as support. Thin Lizzie plus support. <laughs> right. I mean, this is like... You changed the name of the yeah, band. I mean, you might yeah. as well just walk the plank, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, I mean, this is, the, this is the rock and roll version of walking the plank. Mm -hmm. So, curtains down, we're barely getting it together. Now, curtain goes up as the audience is going... <laughs> Lizzie. Like, and then Frank comes out and goes, Hi, everybody! And they go... <laughs> he goes, Hey, Finn Lizzie will be right out. And they go, Rah! he says, but first, here's Clover. <laughs> and they go, boo. And the stuff starts flying. And, and uh, I mean, it was a horrible first night. It was all we could do to get through most of the songs. But as soon as it ended, and I walked off stage, waiting in the wings was Philip Lennop. And Philip said, uh, may I have a word? I said, yeah. He says, come come, come to my dressing room. And we get in the dressing room, and he started to critique our set and help me. It really became my mentor, helped me with mm. everything, the set list and what songs we should play and what I should do. And eventually, you know, I stayed with him once in a while. He dressed me out of his closet. He, uh, I played on all his solo records, and he really taught me more than, uh, not musically necessary, but everything else how to run a rock band? What did he What did he tell you about that stage stuff? How to rock? How to? It wasn't it wasn't how he told me. It's how he conducted himself. How he how he ran his crew and his band. It was fascinating, and and how he treated the fans. He was Philip was ama an amazing guy, and he's the one that kind of gave me confidence that I could sing more and do more of my own thing a little bit. And then, so while you're there, I think it's at that time some of Clover backs up. Elvis Costello. And his first on My Aim is True, his first record. My Aim is True. And then you play, Is it was it that trip where you played for, on Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds records? Nick Lowe and that, was, that was a little later, those two, that, yeah. Uh, Clover, the rhythm section plays, uh, backed up Elvis for My Aim is True, and Nick produced it. And then, so we made two records and and they didn't happen. We came really close, but didn't happen. So the band breaks up when... 
John McPhee and drummer Kevin Wells have written a song and they want to go their own solo route. They, McPhee eventually joins the Doobies. So we split up and I go back to Marin County and I just start a little jam session. Uh, they asked me to run a jam session every Monday night. And we just did a Monday night live fun, just a, a jam where we had comedians and and f- just goofy stuff. And I had a house band mm-hmm. that I selected, which was four of them was news member, pers- you know, go- soon to be news guys. Mm-hmm. And I started singing all the songs. And uh, I emceed the deal, and then I sang the songs. And the thing got to be very popular. We got offered a free studio time. So we went in to the studio with our Monday Night Live band, and we cut a disco version of Exodus that we were of playing. The theme like, from Exodus. Theme from Exodus. Exodisco, right. we called it. Yeah. It was really funny. But I was mindful that I wasn't going to try to make anything happen. I was going to do things for the heck of it, like the punks did. So when I got the free studio time, I said, you know what we're going to cut? Exodisco. Because it was just fun. And now, so Now, at this point, you'd been in the music business for some time, though. Did you... For you, was were you just goofing off, or did you think in your back of mind, no, this is going to be one day I'm going to be big, and one day the not band yet. is going to be not big. yet. I'm not thinking. I'm thinking to myself, the the lesson here is, don't worry about record deals or records or anything. Just have fun, play music, and do this thing. Do not worry about your stupid career anymore. So that's what we did. We cut Exodisco. I mean, how how stupid is using two days of studio time to cut a disco version of Exodus? It's ridiculous. <laughs> so now I got this th- tape, and like days later, Nick Lowe calls me and says, we want you to come over, and I want you to play on one song of mine, and, I, and Edmonds wants, and we Rockpile wants to cut Bad is Bad, and Edmonds wants to sing it. Mm-hmm. I said, great, sure. So he says, well, f- can we fly over? Yeah. So I fly over to London. I land go straight to the studio, cut the Nick Lowe song, cut Bad is Bad. Then we the record company comes down, their record company, and listens to the tracks. Everything's fine. There's there's a there's a kind of a lull. I say, you guys want to hear something funny? He says, sure. So I play Exodisco for them, right? <laughs> well, the record company loves it. They go, wow, that could be a hit. I said, well, great. Yeah, he said, come see us. We'll make a singles deal. I said, great uh tomorrow okay sure they leave so i go to jake i say jake what do i do he says no problem he says get 11 points and three thousand pounds which in those days was really good it was almost six grand Mm -hmm. so i get three thousand pounds he says and they might want you to do some other work like sing on it or you know put some if they want to do anything say fine but you pay for the studio time and don't leave without the 3,000 pounds. I said, okay. So the next day I went to the record label. Sure enough, made a singles deal for Exodisco. Come, I got a, I got a, three, I got a check for 3,000. I go back to California. I call my Monday Night Live compadres. I go, hey, boys, we got a little action. You know, I got, I, I, I got a singles deal here. So they say, great. But they wanted me to sing on it a little more, right? Mm-hmm. They want a little more vocal because I, I hadn't didn't do a lot of vocals, mainly an instrumental. I said, no problem. I'll sing on it, no problem. So we go back to the studio and I go, hey, I need to sing a little more on that. I got some, we need some studio time. Come to find out they've erased part of the master that I, the, the multi-track. So I screamed bloody murder. I said, what am I going to do? I just made a singles deal for this deal. They want me to sing. I, they I got to recut it now. They said, well, no problem. Uh, we'll give you as much time as you need. I said, I'm going to need a week. They said, no problem. You got it. I said, okay, wow. So then what I did is I took the master track, put it onto two of the 20 of the 24 track multi mm-hmm. sang on a third track, Mixed it down to another two track. <sniffs> Done with it. Took two hours, three hours. I lost a generation of tape, and it sounded, you could tell, actually. Yeah. Wasn't very good, but I knew it didn't mean anything. And with the rest of the week, I cut three other songs with my band, the original songs that got us our record contract and our and our manager. Yeah. So saying to hell with it, paid off. Okay. See, that was, that was the, the zen riddle for me was, Quit trying to make it, and you will. We'll be right back with Huey Lewis after a short break. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. We're back with the rest of Bruce's interview with Huey Lewis. For your second album, though, you did, uh, which you made with Mutt Lang, the producer. Yeah. You've called that the deal with the devil. What did you mean by that? They kind of coaxed that out of me, to be honest. That's why we insisted on producing our own record on Picture This, because I wanted to make those decisions the commercial decisions ourselves, because we knew we were going to have to live with them forever. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we started producing ourselves. Mm -hmm. But you knew at that point, look, we're going to be a pop band now. We're not going to be a jam band. We're not going to be... Well, there were no jam bands. Zero. It's 1980. Mm -hmm. There's nothing but hit singles. And we, as you correctly surmised, were more like a jam band than we Mm -hmm. were. So the hardest thing for us was to get a hit single. And that's what we... So we we wanted to produce ourselves because we wanted to make those decisions ourselves. Mm -hmm. But we, starting with Do You Believe in Love, and then later with sports, because Do You Believe in Love was our only hit on that record. And it sold 250,000 copies, which was kind of break-even for those times. But on sports, which we produced ourselves, we literally aimed every track right at radio because we knew we needed a hit single to exist. We didn't know we were going to have five of them, but we, we... we knew we needed one, and that's that's why sports is sounds like it does a record of its time, a collection of singles. Mm-hmm. Were you always confident you could deliver a single though? That we could get a single. That you could deliver a single. No, that's that was that, I was not confident at all that we could deliver a single. That's why I got the Mutt Langer song. That's why I cut cut heart and soul on sports mm-hmm. because they sounded like hits to me, and and that became your first hit, right? Heart and soul. Heart and Soul was our first single off off sports, sports. and that did did that do the was that the best the highest ranking single on that? Yeah, I I don't know. It got to top ten. Mm-hmm. I think it got to six. Yeah. We didn't have the first number one we had was Power Love. I think okay. all all those sports singles, none of them got to number one, but the album went to a number one. Right, because you had uh, if this is it, Heart of Rock and Roll, New Drug, New Drug, Heart and Soul. Yeah. And uh, If This Is It and Walking on a Thin Line was a single. Okay. Now, I do have one bone to pick with you about Heart of Rock and Roll because I grew up in Canada and the version we heard when you were listing the cities at the end, (laughs) you say, Toronto, Montreal, and everybody was so happy. And then I moved to the States 20 years ago. I hear the song on the radio that's not on the version down here. Isn't that funny? And I'll tell you another. I'll tell you another funny anecdote to that same thing. How that happened? When the song looks like it's going to be a single and going to be a hit, they got me back in the studio to sing every song, every city in the world. Basically, <laughs> I mean, they wanted me to so do. If I'm in, so if I'm in Sweden, I'm hearing Stockholm. And so, so now I'm in Canada. We're doing Canada, yeah. Toronto. Yeah, you know. But and now it goes Halifax, and I'd never been to Halifax, right? And I went. Time out. I can't. 
say Halifax, okay? Why? I said, because the heart of rock and roll can't be in Halifax. I said, I just can't. So I, I drew the line at Halifax. And what's funny about that is that now, the next year, we do a, we open our tour in Canada. And we start we start in Newfoundland. Uh, and and um, and the, and the, and now we travel to Halifax, and I go see Halifax, and and we go out. We have a night off. We go to this little pub, and there's this great rhythm and blues band there at Halifax. And Halifax is the most soulful little funky town I've ever been to. And I could put it could I, Halifax is a lot funkier than half of the cities I've mentioned in the song. <laughs> it was funny. So when you when you hit it big, you're in your early 30s by this point? Yeah. You've been doing this a long time. That's I right. think you're married. You may have one of one of your kids, That's I think. Right. What was it like to be suddenly one of the just biggest stars in the world? Well, it, you know, it it wasn't overwhelming because I'd been doing it so long and I'd seen so much, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd seen Philip and I'd seen all the stuff. And so I understood. I mean, I I understood that and I even set the boys down at a certain point when we were opening for 38 Special and 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 our record was taken off and we were just killing it. And it was so much fun because we, we'd show up at the gig. All we do is support. You know, we, we play, four, what, a, an hour maybe in front of 38 Special. We show up at 7, eat a big crew meal, and then go on stage at 7.30 or 8.00. And we're done at nine. See ya, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and and we were tearing the crowd up because our record was 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 going. And we do as many encores as we want. And all. And I remember sitting everybody down. We had a nice little discussion. I said, "Boys, enjoy this because it's, you know, unfortunately we're going to be headlining our own shows pretty soon. We have to bring our own lights and our own sound, and the critics are going to be after us. And we're going to have to cut. We're going to have to sound check's going to be at eleven in the morning. And we're going to blah blah. And I said, "This right here." This is as good as it gets. Riding on the bubble right now, mm-hmm. feeling this momentum, riding this rocket ship to the top. Yeah. Enjoy this because it only happens once in your whole life. Yeah. And we did. We we I can honestly say because we weren't spring chickens, we knew what was going on, and we took it with a measure of salt and had fun. Were you still enjoying it when you when you were the top when you were the oh, headliners? Yeah. I, I didn't like the profile so much, you know. Airports, malls, shopping malls, they were really hard because I get I was bombarded with stuff and and I, I you know, I I'm used to it and I got good I good at it. You talk them down. You say, wait, wait, look, you have to talk to your crowd, you know. Mm-hmm. You the more you try and be a recluse, the worse they get. So you gotta go right after them and say, Look, I can't sign all your autographs. There's a hundred of you. You got it? So just Please, thanks very much. But I, I, there was a lot of explaining and a lot of moving out of places and worried about going over there because of all those people. And right. and now I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you had strange things. You were uh, you were on USA for Africa, but you weren't supposed to sing, and then you did sing. Right? How did how did that happen? Well, you know, we got invited to do that. Do it. We do the chorus, and now we're done. And they take breaks, and we're in the. I'm in the lounge, um, you know, telling jokes and whatnot, and we're just having fun, thinking it's over. And I get, and a guy comes, assistant comes to me, he says, "Hey, Quincy wants to see you." Really? So I go out, say, "Quincy, hey." He says, "Hey, Huey, we're Smelly. Smelly, get over here." Yeah, and that was Mike, they called Michael Smelly because he was so clean. And Michael Jackson comes Michael over. Michael Jackson this, was called Smelly. Smelly, right? And, and so Quincy says, "Sing him your line," and and. Michael sings the line, and he says, sing it, Huey. I sang the line. He says, you got it. It was Prince's line, but Prince didn't oh. show up. Prince boycotted the— So you US, got Prince's line. I got Prince's line. Yeah, because you're early in the song. No, no, no. I'm Aren't on the you? bridge. Oh, you okay. just believe oh, there's no right. way we can fall. Oh, wow, that's right. That was going to be Prince. Yeah. Did Michael sing it well when he sang it to you? Oh, yeah. And Michael was right there for the whole recording session. Oh, okay. Uh, he, him, then me. I had the line right after Michael. Okay. So so we when we cut, we stood there while we cut and and you know there were a bunch of bad takes and guys screwed up and everything. So I got to interact with Michael mm-hmm. and he was amazing. I mean first of all he knew he didn't miss a trick, you know, in terms of the recording and to to look at him you'd think he was just 
kind of, he had the big dark glasses, the aviator shades on, mm -hmm. and tons of makeup. You know, he's just full pancake makeup. There were baby moons on his glasses. He had so much makeup on, mm -hmm. you know. So you think, oh, this guy, he's out of it. Well, he was not out of it. He knew exactly what was going on. Because mm -hmm. I remember when we did the the round, the, the first pass to sing lead, we had like five microphones and there were 15 singers. So we all, three to each mic. One guy would would lean in, sing his part, and mm -hmm. then get back. The middle guy would lean in, sing back. And the last guy, kind of like that. So when we start, it starts with, here comes the night when we heed a certain call, when the world must come together as one. Then Steve goes, there are people dying. Oh, 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 wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. And so he stops everything. And then we go back and start again. And he intentionally messes it up. You know, he's cute. He's just mm -hmm. messing around. You know, right. Stevie's just messing around. And so now they go back and they start it again. And now they get maybe down to Al Jarreau and he messes up. And now they start it again. And they get down to somebody else before they stop. And they go back. And now Humberto Gattaca, the engineer, comes out to tweak the, the, the microphones. And I go, hey, Humberto, what? I said, hey, could you just let it play all the way through so we can at least have a whack at our line? I, I mean, Stevie Wonder's had four takes already, and I got none. <laughs> and he's Stevie Wonder, you know? And he, and, and, and he goes back. He says, oh, sure, no problem. He goes back in. And Michael says to me, good idea, good idea. I said, thanks. <laughs> and now we do a pass, and it's not very good. And he lets it all go. You can tell us. All right, Quincy said, let's do another one. We do another pass. And we actually nail it. I don't know if it was the second one or third one, but we do this one pass that's real good all the way around. Boom. And then I look and I see him say to, I see Quincy through the glass to indicate to Humbertica, save that one. And then he says, all right, let's do it. Let's just do another one. And right then Michael grabs my arm and says, are they going to save that last one? I said, yeah, they're saving the last one. He says, good. I said, yeah. He says, because that was it, wasn't it? I said, yep, that was it. Okay, and that was it. He didn't have to it. do any more. Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, and then you you did Power of Love. You did for the for the movie. Yeah. And that was your first number one. First number one. And you, we, I should, think. we should mention you've written other than Heart and Soul. You write all the songs as well, or co-write the songs. Yeah. Yeah. And you wrote all of the rest. Power of Love. Yeah. Power of Love. Uh, Power of Love was you know we Steven Spielberg and Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale and Neil Canton who produced, directed, and wrote the film, uh, asked that to take a meeting with us at Amblin Entertainment. Amblin was brand new. Zemeckis said, you know, we've just written this film called Back to the Future, uh, and our, our, our lead character, Marty McFly, his favorite band would be Huey Lewis and the News. How would you like to write a song for the film? I said, flattered, but I don't know how to write for film necessarily. And I, I don't mean to be offend you, but I don't fancy writing a song called Back to the Future. <laughs> and they said, oh, no problem. You can call it whatever you want to call it. We just right. want one of your songs. I said, great, I'll send you the next thing we write. And that was it? Yeah, that's the way I remember it. Zemeckis remembers us sending down a demo of Power of Love and him saying to me that, it, him told me that it wasn't up enough, up quote unquote. And so the verse is in a minor key, right? So, and I can't remember what version we had. I know we had two bridges, but, and and then according to Zemeckis, we made some changes. And I suppose that could be what Johnny, when Johnny's participation, which are those major stabs at the beginning, I think we might have. And when you say Johnny, which. Johnny Cola, our oh, saxophone oh, right, guitar yeah. player and co-writer. Yeah. I think maybe he added those to Chris. But then, then Chris and I had, had written the song. And that's what Johnny did. I think he added that okay. part. And then we sent it down. And then Bob Zemeckis wrote Oh, it. so it started with that verse, which has the kind of funkier. Yeah. Oh, I see. They want a little happier sound off the top, though. And then you had one of the great cameos in Hollywood <laughs> history. Um, well, it's, it's certainly one of the great seven-second cameos <laughs> in Hollywood history. Was the line written for you, or did you say, did you say it as written? Or I patted it. it, it the written was, you're too loud. And I put, you're too darn loud. Yeah, sorry. Is it sorry, boys? You're just uh, Sorry, boys. You're just too darn loud. Oh, that's fabulous. You've done some acting, but... Yeah, I love it. I, I dig it. I, I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid to say that. I have thespian aspirations. Okay. 
but you you only do that. You've done hot in Cleveland. You've done some TV. Uh, people must have been throwing movie scripts at you yeah. all the time. But but they, they, there's stuff where I'm Huey Lewis or I'm a rock star or you know, I don't want to do I, I you know that's not you know sports was we produced ourselves and mm-hmm. we literally went after we needed a hit single yeah and and, and so. That was the last thing, and we and we really just tore our hair out over hit singles, and you know, and we were we were mean to each other over that because it wasn't good enough, and the horn chart and stuff. I mean, I was I was pretty pretty mean, you know, pretty ambitious and pretty mean. Mm-hmm. And I vowed when the sports hit like crazy, I said, you know what, I'm not going to do anything for commercial reasons anymore. I'm gonna if it doesn't have a creative component to it, I'm not in. And so, you know, I've just pretty much kind of stuck by that. Right. Well, for uh, not the next album, but the album after that, you've Stan Getz play in a couple of. Yeah. Um, That's another great story. But the way that worked is my dad was a jazzer, as I told you. And and he tells me, I'm talking to my dad, and he goes, hey, man, Zoot Sims died, and they're doing a benefit for Zoot. I said, really? And he says, man, that, that'll, be, that'll be something, man. They got Jimmy Jones Trio and Getz and all these people. I said, Oh, well, whatever. So secretly, I got tickets for my old man, for my dad and I to go see this this thing. So then I told him we got tickets. He said, oh, that's great, great. So we go, and and he doesn't know anything about my career because my dad's a jazzer, and his advice to me always was, you know, I'd say, I'm, make, I'm working on a new record, Dad. He'd go, great. He says, uh, are you playing harmonica? I said, yeah, I'm playing a little bit. He says, hey, man, I mean, you, you need to play harmonica. I said, what? I'm telling you, he says, play harmonica. Here's, let me tell you something. Just keep practicing that harmonica because they can't take that away from you. He says, this Huey Lewis shit, here today, gone tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) That was my dad's advice to me. Did he ever come and see you? Much later. I I flew him to Worcester Centrum. We sold out three nights at the Centrum. I flew him back to Boston to see his mother, who he hadn't talked to in 30 or 40 years. You know, he was a hard-ass Irish, think Eugene O'Neill, okay? Okay. So now, my dad, I get tickets to this jazz benefit for Zoot Sims, and we go to the place, and we're there early, and 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 they, they go, oh my gosh, there's Huey, you know, Huey. oh yes sir, Mr. Lewis, and this, my dad can't believe how well I'm treated, and they march us down to the two aisle seats, small club anyway, but two aisle seats in like the third row, perfect, best seats in the house, and sitting right there is Phil Elwood, the, the music critic, mm-hmm. and my dad knows everything about jazz, I mean, he plays jazz, but he knows Everything. He's a musicologist. He can name everybody in Jimmy Lunsford's band. He can name everybody in Chick Webb's orchestra. He knows everything, you know. And so he sees, and he reads Phil Elwood all the time. And Phil Elwood says, oh, my God, Huey Lewis, how you doing, man? A big fan, says Elwood. And my old man sees Elwood recognizing his son and can't even believe it. I said, this is my dad. He said, oh, my God, you're Phil Elwood. Yeah, so I sit my old man down and Elwood next to Elwood, and they just start talking about Mm -hmm. jazz and stuff and all these guys and blah, 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 and all stuff. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there when we're kind of waiting for things. I feel a tap on my shoulder like this, and I turn around, and it's Getz. And he's got his horn on, and he's, 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 he's standing over me with his horn. He goes, you're Huey Lewis, right? I said, yeah, he says, yeah, my girlfriend wants to eat your shorts. <laughs> I, said, I, said, I said, oh, I'm sorry. He says, hey, and I look, I go, oh, my God, it's Dan Guess. He says, hey, hey, why don't you let me play on some of your shit? He says, you know, I can play that crap, too. I said, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure you can. Uh, yeah, whatever, he's here. And he, he gets a card out, and he, and he gave me a card. It said, Stan Getz, he puts, have sex, we'll travel, and handed me the card. <laughs> and I put it in my pocket. So my old man's beside himself. And on the ride home, my old man says, if you don't take him up on that offer, I will never, ever forgive you. He says, he has cancer, and he's not going to be around that long. And you need, you need, my dad was a radiologist and knew all this oncology stuff in those right. days. And he knew about Getz's condition and all this. So- that's how, so then I, we spent six months looking for a, a tune that would work for Stan. Mm-hmm. And then Chris came up with that little riff, and I wrote Small World just for Getz as a, oh. as a vehicle. Now, you did, uh, you guys kept touring. 
you kept making new albums, but you didn't, before this album, you didn't do a new album for about 20 years, right? I think 2000 was your last? New, not, not an album of original material. Right. We've done a couple things since then, but they were, yeah. did a Soulsville, we did an R&B, uh, Stax, really a Memphis tribute record. Now, were you a big Stax fan? I was. Okay, because what's great about that record, you do respect yourself, and I think a couple of uh-huh. uh, uh, Solomon Burke songs, but most of them are songs most people don't know. That's like, right. Like uh, you've got a, a couple of great Johnny Taylor songs, right. "Free," uh, just the one I'm looking for. Right, right. Good for you. That's see my the theory was because people have done original versions of old songs like. Mustang Sally or, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, knock on wood yeah, or right. soul man or something. And I, so it was either do a completely original version of soul man or of those of a really recognizable song or find songs that weren't so recognizable that people didn't know anything about and do faithful versions of those. Mm-hmm. And I thought that would be more fun. Yeah. So tell me a little, your new album, uh, seven songs, and that's because you ran. That's because it. that's how many Kanye had. No, oh, it's okay. not. <laughs> Is that the reason? No. Um, you know, some of it, like like your single "Her Love Is Killing Me," that sounds very much like an '80s. Everybody says that. I don't. You I don't, don't hear it. I, I, that, you know what? The comment I get more than anything else is that it's just vintage Huey Lewis and the News. It sounds like Huey Lewis and the News right away. You know, it's a Huey Lewis and the News record. Mm-hmm. I mean, all with all the songs. I go, really? What What does Huey Lewis and the News sound like? We, I mean, we're all over the map. I don't. I don't. I don't. Well, I was going to say, I think the single does. It's got that kind of crunchy '80s guitar, but some of the other ones, like uh, "When We're Young" and "One of uh, the Boys," "While We're Young," yeah, uh, "While We're Young," and "Remind Me Why I Still Love You." It's got. They're more. They're kind of back to your '70s funk days a little more. It's got that kind of country thing. Was it nice to kind of feel like eh, it doesn't have to it doesn't have to sound like Power of Love? We can do what we want. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the truth is, I just follow the song. I mean, the song is the hardest part of the whole deal. You got to have a song needs to be about something. You have to have a perspective, and and at my ripe old age, I mean, you know. It's hard to find an original perspective. You're writing a rock and roll song, so it's really, it's kind of like a haiku. I mean, you really are trying to reinvent the wheel here with a pop song, Mm -hmm. and you don't want to cover past stuff, and I've already written a bunch of stuff, so what am I going to do with this ripe old, can't sing about cars and girls anymore, what am I going to do, you know? Wait a second, you do sing about cars and girls. I do? Yeah, pretty girls everywhere. All right, pretty, well, that's (laughs) Eugene Church singing about girls. Okay. (laughs) It's fantastic. It is great. Uh, so what what happens now? You've got this album out. You're dealing with these health issues we talked about. What's what's the prognosis for that? Well, it's not the end of the world, you know. I mean, did it ever seem like the end of the world? It did in the first for the first couple months. I was so depressed. I you know, and then I don't know why. Was, I guess you know, shame on me for for that. I suppose, but I was. I was just horribly depressed, thinking I was never going to sing again. Mm-hmm. You know. I, I don't miss doing five shows a week, you know, <laughs> right. but I miss doing a show every now and again. Yeah. And I miss, I miss the camaraderie. I miss, I miss the circus that was rock and roll touring, the 25 of us, you yeah. know, it was a fun thing. It's a great, it's a great way to, it's a great way to live. It's a, you get to kind of live like a teenager, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Okay. Well, I hope you get to live that way again. Me Thank too. you so much. This has been so wonderful. Thank you. Thanks to Huey Lewis for sharing his story. We certainly hope he's back on stage soon. Huey's new album, Weather, is out now. You can hear it along with the rest of our favorite Huey cuts by checking out the playlist we made for this episode at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel where you can find all our past episodes and some great bonus material as well. You can subscribe at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mia LaBelle, Leah Rose, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. Thanks for listening. I'm Justin Richmond. 
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.